And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. I hope your week is going well. We've got a nice big holiday weekend coming up, so I hope you have fun and festive plans. And ha- happy Independence Day in advance. I'm looking forward to it myself. We have a great show for you planned today. Jeremy Treat's going to be joining me. He's uh, talking about the kingdom of God. And then I'll be re- uh, joined by Dr. Rebecca Ree, one of my very favorite Hebrew scholars. We're going to talk about the fragility of life. It's going to be a great show. I hope you're off to a good start today, as am I. Jeremy Treat is a pastor, lives in Los Angeles. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. I'm really honored to be here. <laughs> Have you been a California guy uh, most of your life? Or? No, no. I, I, so I actually grew up in Alaska, so I understand the cold and the snow. I lived in Alaska until I was 12, and then uh, Seattle area after that. I've been in Los Angeles now for over seven years. Okay. And what was uh, what were you what was your dad doing in Alaska? Well, he was a he was a carpenter. He ended up starting his own cabinet shop business, um, and so he was building cabinets. And then his his cabinet shop burned down. And in 1987, he bought an Apple Macintosh store. Oh wow! So he <laughs> unfortunately unfortunately he didn't get any stock, but okay. he got in early on in computers and uh, a pretty you know interesting career shift. But yeah, that. So I, I, I grew up in the cabinet shop and then in the computer store. Yeah. And you uh, preach and uh, lead at Reality LA in Los Angeles. And you did some mm. work at Biola University and guy that can do anything and everything. Uh, well, God's given me some great opportunities. And I mean, to be able to pastor in Los Angeles um, is, is a joy. It's crazy and difficult and nonstop, but, but I love it. And then I love Biola. I mean, I did, I did part of my undergrad at Biola and um, loved it as a student. So to be able to teach a little bit there on the side is a real honor. Yeah. Now you were, I think we're in high school when you uh, read a little C.S. Lewis and your, and your heart just got lit on fire, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, growing up, I, I didn't read very much at all. Um, and I, I, I did okay in school, but when I read when I read C.S. Lewis, I felt like um, it made me realize how much I didn't know, <laughs> and that kind of like sparked this hunger to learn within me. And um, I think that was the first time for me really that like my faith kind of took on any sense of intellectual rigor or um, of just like learning to love God with my mind. And started reading theology and even just trying to read the scriptures in a way to have a, a deeper level of understanding with it. And so, yeah, I feel like that's never stopped for me. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting at a desk that's surrounded by piles of books. So <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm still going in that route. Yeah. And the book you came out with, uh, I think it was last April is called seek first, how the kingdom of God changes everything. I'd love to hear about that. Just get things. Yeah. Started. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, for me growing up, I grew up in the church and, uh, I didn't hear much about the kingdom of God growing up, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked a lot about the cross. We talked a lot about heaven. We talked a lot about the love of God, but um, we never really talked about the kingdom. And I, I, I've, I've since learned that, you know, that that's because I grew up in a context where people were nervous about uh, social gospel and which was associated with kingdom and kind of connotations with that. But I remember um, hearing one day that the number one thing that Jesus talked about is the kingdom of God. And that just floored me because I, um, it, it, 
I, I'd hardly talked about it. I'd hardly heard about it. And how could the number one thing that Jesus talked about not really be on my radar in terms of what it means to be a Christian or how I think about God or what he's doing in the world? And so that really set me on a journey of saying, I, I need to understand what the kingdom of God is and how that applies to my life. And so my book, Seek First, is is really the result of that. And, you know, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. And so I, in the book, I try to show what what is the kingdom of God and then apply it to a bunch of different aspects in life. Yeah. Now, Jeremy, you talked about growing up and you learned about the cross and now that you're studying and teaching about the kingdom, what what is the relationship between the kingdom and the cross? Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's something that I spent three years of my life trying to answer that question. I, I did my PhD at Wheaton College, and I wrote my dissertation um, trying to answer that exact question of how does the kingdom and the cross relate together? Because in my experience, uh, there were some people who would want to cling to the cross, others who would champion the kingdom, but usually one to the exclusion of the other. And so you kind of have these whole crowds uh, and churches developing around those, some who have a cross-centered theology that's focused on salvation, and then others who are more kingdom-minded and want to be more activist. And so I I spent a few years uh, studying the scriptures and, and reading theology. And what I really came to with that is seeing that that you can't understand the kingdom without the cross, and you can't understand the cross without the kingdom. And in scripture, we see those integrated in this beautiful story. It really is a story of the kingdom of God that culminates in the crucifixion of Christ, the Messiah, the King. And so he brings the kingdom through the cross. And then we live in this cross-shaped kingdom where we take up our crosses, we deny ourselves and follow Christ the King. Jeremy, I'm just thinking because when you write a book about something and you become, uh, you know, a go-to person— now, in your case, you want to talk about the kingdom, and I'm wondering what kind of questions do believers come to you with regarding the kingdom? For a lot of people, it depends. It depends on the the different tradition that they've been in, oh, for and, sure. and the ways that kingdom has been associated for them. Um, kingdom can kind of become this junk drawer term that gets attached to different things, mm-hmm. and so for. For a lot of people, um, they they only associate the kingdom with the end times and with the return of Christ. Um, and so for them, they might ask questions about, well, what does this mean to think of life today in light of the kingdom of God, if that's something that's solely future? And so I, I'll try to explain to them that the kingdom is is already and not yet. So there are future aspects of the kingdom of God that that we look forward to in the scriptures of the return of Christ, the renewal of all things, and we need a long for that and hope for that. And yet we have to acknowledge that the kingdom has already come in Christ. And so we can experience the victory of the kingdom today and the peace of the kingdom today. So, so with people in that situation, I might talk about that. Others, if they're coming more from like a mainline liberal tradition, they might associate kingdom uh, with what we do to help people. So when they hear about kingdom, they think of feeding the homeless or think, they think of doing good things in the city. And, and what I would want to talk with them about is how justice is certainly a reflection of the kingdom of God. But the kingdom is not about what we do to make the world a better place. Uh, in Hebrews, it says we do not— we do not build the kingdom, we receive the kingdom from above. 
And so the kingdom is ultimately God's reign breaking in, and then that shapes our lives. So when we are living as citizens of the kingdom, we are we are going to look uh, to the needs of the poor. We're going to be like the the uh, the good Samaritan, right? Who's who's looking to show God's love and compassion to people. But it's also really important that we don't confuse. Uh, this message of the kingdom, which is ultimately one of grace, of God's reign breaking in, it's important that we don't confuse that with what what we do, as if we are building the kingdom here on earth. Mm-hmm. And then there's a lot of people that pray every day, "Thy kingdom come." <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that and that the you know the Lord's prayer, um, it really shows the essential direction of the kingdom that it's it's ultimately about God's kingdom coming from above and breaking in into our lives. But we can experience that every day as we're praying now. Jeremy, let's talk a little bit about the, you know, you talk about in your book, the the in search of a master narrative. Like, why are yeah. we here? What's wrong? What's the remedy? How will mm-hmm. it end? These are great questions. And I think all of us need to be looking at these questions and formulating our answers. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, everyone, everyone loves stories, right? That's mm-hmm. why we watch movies and listen to songs and sit around campfires. Um, but but it's not just that we like stories. Everybody lives by a bigger story, a master narrative. And this is what gives us our identity. It's what tells us what our purpose is. It's what wakes us up in the morning and keeps us going during difficult times. It's it's the way that we we frame our lives. And so uh, you can you can easily look around our culture and realize that um, it's not just that people are are rejecting kind of uh, one story of like the story of Christianity. They're they're replacing it and living by another story. So a secular narrative that says that that really says the story, the goal of the story is personal happiness, and I'm the hero of that story, and mm-hmm. and that kind of frames my life and why I get frustrated if anyone tells me I can't do what I want to do and whatnot, and so recognizing that everybody lives by a bigger story in that sense. And the the scriptures give us the master narrative, the, the greatest story of all, where we're in this good world created by God, um, but it's fallen. Our sin has brought brokenness. And so that ex- that explains already both the beauty and the brokenness of the world. But then God is redeeming his creation. And so we play a key role in the story, but we're not the hero. Um, Christ is. And so we look to him, and that's what gives us meaning and identity and security in life. Mm-hmm. I, I find the the idea that we don't really learn a lot about the kingdom, uh, and maybe it's just the wave of what's happened over the last several decades. I, I think I hear, like you said, more about the cross, more about obviously Jesus, who is the mm-hmm. you know the reason that we he is our life, but also this this whole kingdom. Whenever I hear the kingdom, I always associate it uh, oftentimes with uh, social justice things, and yeah. it's a much bigger uh, picture than that, isn't it? Yeah, and it's I, I think it's going to it's going to connect with and frame social justice issues for sure. But you can't just equate it with that and and kind of say if if we're doing these certain things, then that's that's just kingdom work automatically. So I mean. The, the ultimate kingdom work, so to speak, is seeing people transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. So even the kingdom of God frames the way that we shape salvation. And that really, that really uh, impacts day-to-day life because it's not just I'm saved as like a ticket to go to heaven when mm-hmm. I die, but I'm saved into a kingdom. 
and I live following that kingdom or following that king every day. Uh, but again, that doesn't minimize social justice in my mind. I mean, you see clearly throughout the Old Testament that the, the throne of God is founded on justice and righteousness. And you have constantly these depictions in the Old Testament, even of the longing for the eternal kingdom of God as, um, as a, a place where there will be no oppression and injustice and all the wrongs will be righted. So justice is a key element of the kingdom of God, but it's not the only element. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about in your book, A Kingdom Purpose, I, I love these chapters, follow Jesus, seek community, pursue justice. I mean, uh, yeah. nicely stated. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd love for you to talk yeah, a little somewhere, bit about each. Well, I think part of that is that we need we need to recognize how all of those fit together. So you've got, and I think the kingdom of God helps us hold those together because some people might just make it all about following Jesus and it's all about discipleship, but, Mm -hmm. but they can turn that into like a, um, an individualized pursuit of holiness that's not connected to community or, uh, how God's called us to, to be salt and light in a city. Right. Mm -hmm. But then on the other hand, other people might just focus on pursuing justice, but they miss out on, uh, following Jesus and being with Jesus, knowing Jesus, and then how we're we're called to the city, but we're also set apart as a family of disciples. So I think we need to make sure that we see each one of those aspects in the calling to the kingdom. Mm-hmm. So I'll take a little break. When we come back, lots more with Jeremy Treat. Welcome back to the show. Jeremy Treat is my guest. We're chatting about his book, Seek First, How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything. And as we are now at this place, the world is getting increasingly more political. I know I would love to get your perspective, uh, Jeremy, on how we look at the world, keep our eyes on Jesus, have wisdom in these political times, um, and, and look through the lens of faith and try to figure out how we can point towards unity with each other. Yeah, I mean, with with the election coming up at the end of the year, politics is going to dominate the landscape of our culture. And so, I, I, as a pastor, I'm I'm trying to prepare our church to be able to be faithful to Christ in the midst of all of that. Uh, we're doing a sermon series right now on politics and the way of Jesus. And so, we we just kicked that off last week and um, trying to be able to talk about things, trying to be able to give Christians tools and uh, the equipping that they need to be ready for this cultural storm that we're in. So I think some of the keys of that is that we've got to recognize that our citizenship in the kingdom of God shapes and overrides our citizenship in any city or country that we live in. And I think scripture makes clear that we're dual citizens but we are Christians before we are Republicans or Democrats. And we say that Jesus is Lord in such a way that makes clear that our allegiance is ultimately to him. So I think we've got to be clear on that. But I think something that's really important about all this that's often missed in these discussions is I believe that the way we talk about politics is just as important as what we believe about politics. And people have always disagreed about politics and government, 
but what if one of the main problems today is that we've lost the ability to actually dialogue with people that we disagree with? Mm-hmm. So I think for Christians to be able to step into this political season that we're entering into and be able to take some of the uh, the the basic teachings of Scripture to show love to people that you disagree with, to pray for your enemies, to to see the the image of God in every single person, whether they align with us or not on our politics. So I think Christians could really stand out in this year if we both apply our faith to our politics, but also do so in a way that's that's characterized by love. So it's a maybe a great example of how uh, seeing ourselves as member of members of the kingdom first is going to affect how we uh, see others and how it changes how we live. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we we look at politics through the lens of the kingdom, and and not the other way around. Um, it's the danger is when when our our primary identity and allegiance is to a political party. And then we try and squeeze Jesus into that or find Bible verses that can support that. Then we have, we've kind of co-opted, we've been co-opted by a political party and just trying to use scripture or any resources from Christianity um, to to bulk that up even more. But that's not what God has called us to be. He's called us to be a a people who are different, who are set apart. Um, and who are united in Jesus. I mean, we, we should be able to have uh, Republicans and Democrats and independents and libertarians who can actually unite uh, because what we're united by in Christ is stronger than the differences that we have in, po- in politics. Amen. I love that you said that. But still, there is great emotion attached to this discussion, and you mm-hmm. can start a virtual firestorm with one word, um, or, you know, one, one thought that's not expressed clearly can, can start off just a complete snowball of yeah. misunderstandings and, and anger. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the things that we've talked about as a church and I've tried to encourage people with is to have wisdom in the kind of spaces where you're engaging in these conversations. So uh, perhaps social media isn't the best place hmm. for political discourse, right? And um, I really think that if if you care about relationships as much as you care about being right, then the best thing to do is to sit down and talk with people face-to-face and try and show empathy and understand where they're coming from and ask them how they got there and show them respect in the midst of all of that, try and understand before you respond that's the kind of dialogue that we need to have and that we need to model. Mm-hmm. Jeremy, I'd also, just as we talk about the kingdom and how we live out our lives in the kingdom, maybe it's uh, good to have a, a discussion too about having a healthy fear of God. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I I, I think about Isaiah 6, and I, I, Isaiah is before the throne of God, and he looks up and sees the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And his response, and remember Isaiah is a prophet who would usually say, woe is you, woe to you. And he says, woe is me. And this kind of fear of the Lord, this holy reverence, recognizing that God is king, his ways are higher than mine, his thoughts are higher than mine, I think is crucial to everything. I mean, I think the fear of the Lord is is this reverent awe 
of God that he is Lord. He reigns over all. And that, and that brings a humility um, and a self-awareness to, to who I truly am that, that's at the heart of it all. I mean, I, I think the kingdom of God at the end of the day it is it's this vision of the world reordered around God. And so it's a, it's a radically God-centered view of, of life. Mm-hmm. All right, Jeremy, I'm going to ask you a question, which I know in advance you know the answer to, but here it is. Why do you love Jesus? Well, I love Jesus because he first loved me. I mean, he, I was a, I was a, a rebel and he sought me out and made me a son and gave me a place at the table. And I, if, if it weren't for the gospel, um, I, I would be running myself into destruction uh, more than ever. And so I, I'm, I am who I am by the grace of God alone. And I, I, I first learned that as a teenager, but to this day, to be able to come back to the gospel and just live in light of the grace of God in Christ, uh, that how he died for my sins, rose from the grave, that I have new life, be a citizen of the kingdom. Uh, that's everything to me. Mm-hmm. When you came to faith in Christ, uh, Jeremy, do you remember the, the specific language that was used with you and how you responded to that language? Um, yeah, I think I, let's see, that's a good question. I haven't thought about that in a while. I don't know if I can remember exactly, but I feel like I remember my context enough to know the kind of language. I mean, we talked about accepting Christ or receiving Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I remember for me, one of the things that, uh, some of the, I don't know if it's just language or concepts that were really important for me. I grew up in the church and I always knew that Jesus loved me and he died for my sins and whatnot. But I, I I had not really acknowledged my own sin and my need for God's grace. And when I think about even my conversion, I I think back to that of, of that being a a pivotal moment. I knew that God was gracious, but I didn't recognize that, that I needed it. Um, my pride had to be melted away um, before I could uh, receive this grace in in such a way. So I, th- I think being able to th- that kind of just acknowledging sin, receiving grace, those are just real basic categories. Yeah. Yeah. Jeremy, it's really been nice to meet you. Thank you so much for doing the show. Oh, it's an honor. Thanks for yeah. having me on. Yeah. And I would love to have you back. And I will let all my listeners know that Seek First, How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything, is a great read. Uh, Thank you so much for doing the show, and have a great rest of the day. Yeah, thank you. God bless. You bet. Jeremy Treat, again, has been my guest, and his book is called Seek First, How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything. We'll take a little break, and we'll be right back with lots more. You're listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome back to the show. I'm awfully glad whenever I get a chance to have Dr. Rebecca Ree on. She did uh, her undergraduate at Yale. She studied uh, Shakespeare, Greek philosophy, and drama. She did it all. Then she went got her Ph.D. in he- Hebrew uh, in religious literature at Boston University. I, I'm so impressed with her resume, but more so I'm impressed with her as a follower of Jesus and uh, a great uh, writer and communicator. 
And whenever she comes on, she usually talks about her latest uh, entry in her blog. And if you have never signed up to be on her blog, I really encourage you to do it. You can go to RebeccaRee.net and subscribe and you'll get it in your email box and you'll be glad you did. Rebecca, welcome back to the show. It is my delight to be here. How did I do on your introduction? I botch it? <laughs> you did just fine. <laughs> well, I'm glad to have you back and uh, happy summertime. I don't know what your world has changed, how it's changed now that it's summer. Um, well, it's it's hard to say how it's changed because it's been in flux every day. And, and now instead of worrying about regular school, we're worrying about summer school. Yeah. So I say that's the biggest thing. Yeah. And just re- remind our listeners again, when you say you're worried about summer school, what that involves. Yeah, so um, a lot of the times that I write um, about struggle and growth in our lives is uh, through the lens of being a parent of a child. He's nearly eight years old who is on the autism spectrum. So um, uh, getting him a a good and nourishing and uh, developmentally appropriate education is one of the greatest uh, uh, challenges and priorities in our life. All right, and you're... um blog is wonderful. I always love it. I always learn something from it. And I would love for you to uh, talk about your most recent entry. Okay. So the most recent post I put on there was called The Nest, The Nest. And uh, the story I want to tell you today is about a bird's nest that I saw while I was in the midst of a terrible struggle and uh, how that bird's nest spoke to me. So as I said before, as the mother of a nearly eight-year-old son with autism, the longer we stay on lockdown, um, the more difficulty he has just getting through the day because kids with autism so often rely on routine and structure and services they get. And when all those things disappear, they just start spiraling out. And it's also very difficult um, for the parents because even though there may be remote learning opportunities, that's not something that their children can actually take advantage of. So um, it's just a, an all-around very, very difficult time for people with autism and people with special needs in, in, uh, in general. So um, my son's been having uh, difficulty with these, uh, his, what, what his day looks like and how he walks through it. But recently, um, in, in addition to these daytime behaviors, my son has also been spiraling um, out at night which means he's been often waking up at like 2.30 in the morning and staying up for the rest of the day. Oh boy. And his, his behavior, he's, he's very rambunctious when he does this, and um, he needs to be definitely supervised because there's no way I can just plunk him in front of the TV and have him watch a Disney movie or something like that. He needs to be closely supervised because of the crazy things he can do in the night that might be a danger to himself or destroy the house. (laughs) So this is our terrible struggle right now, and this is what the bird's nest that I saw um, was speaking to. Um, And so as my husband and I um, grapple with this issue of sleeplessness, which is, you know, if if anybody out there has ever struggled with insomnia or or some kind of condition where they can't get, get to sleep, um, it becomes um, pretty ugly pretty fast, and um, everything becomes overwhelming, and it's an urgent uh, situation that you need to, to uh, address. And um, personally, the result of all this insomnia, insomnia and sleeplessness is that my own mental health really starts to suffer. So just to sort of give you some context here, uh, most days or many days I walk around feeling pretty um, 
imbalanced and dysfunctional anyway. <laughs> like I usually do with the comparison game and I, I feel like everyone has it more together than I do. I often feel like, oh, that person's so composed. What's wrong with me? Um, but if you take away my sleep, then suddenly I'm questioning God's goodness. I'm questioning whether there's any real purpose to my life, whether my son has any chance at a fruitful life or where my husband and I went wrong, et cetera, et cetera. Everything just kind of, as I've been using that word, spirals out of control. So, you know, my, my usual insecurities sort of balloon in, a, in an exponential way when I haven't had any sleep. So it almost feels like my psyche has become like a spider's web made of glass. And the next thing that flies past is going to totally shatter it. Mm. And um, I was wondering just whether some of your listeners, Bill, who have been experiencing unrest of any kind. And right now, you know, you just turn on the TV and there's all kinds of reason to be experiencing unrest um, out there right now. Um, if any of them can relate to that glass web that's about to shatter, or maybe you feel like you've already shattered. And if that's true, I just want you to hang in there until the end of this story, because there's some biblical truths that I want to kind of uh, bring out that maybe bring some strength and comfort to you. I love it. So um, let's go back to the bird's nest. Okay. So although my husband and I were like just dead tired from, you know, this crazy being up with my uh, son at night, and we decided to take him for a walk around Yale. We live in uh, Connecticut, and Yale's in New Haven, and we both of us went to school there. That's where we met, in fact, and so we decided we would take him for a walk around there, and this was three weeks ago, so the campus was like literally bursting with a beautiful spring growth. I mean, there were flowers coming up everywhere. There were buds on the trees. It was just gorgeous. But in stark contrast, there was nobody else walking around hardly besides us, either, you know, as a visitor or a student or faculty. And, you know, Yale's kind of an international entity. There's always a stream of visitors coming through uh, Yale campus. And this is a really um, odd sort of occurrence for us to be in this context and, and just sort of being alone on campus. And again, the stark contrast between, you know, the explosive growth going on around us and yet the emptiness at the same time. And it was just one more reminder that, you know, we live in a different world since COVID has struck. Um, so, you know, as we were enjoying this gorgeous scenery all around us, and at the same time, it was kind of easier to maneuver my son around because it was empty because he, he doesn't do well in large crowds. So on the one hand, we were appreciating that fact, but there was no denying that Yale felt kind of um, eerie. You know, this emptiness felt kind of eerie and almost disturbing. Um, there was just no escaping that fact. So um, there was just, just weird contrast between what we were seeing and, and what we were experiencing um, emotionally about it. And so right when it was time to go, we were getting inside the car, and my husband points and says, look at the bird's nest. And so I follow his point. And I see that there's this gorgeous tree blossoming with these, like a riot of pink blossoms. And I see that nestled right on, you know, in, in amongst the branches is this little brown cup. And it's perched right in the center, and it's clearly visible from the sidewalk where we were standing. And immediately I had two opposite reactions inside of myself. And the first one was, sort of this gladness 
for the new life. You know, whenever you see new life, um, whether it's a newborn baby or you're going and seeing a, a, like a new growth in a, gar- a, a garden, like a, a sprout or something happening in a garden, there's generally you know, a sense of celebration and happiness when we see a new life uh, burgeoning. And so I sort of felt that first. But then the second reaction that I had was you know, far less pleasant and, and far less rational. And um, inside of my head, I could hear myself screaming at the mother bird. And what, was, what I was saying was, what are you, nuts? <laughs> why, why would you risk having your babies here of all places? It's so barren, and you stick out like a, a sore thumb. It is so not safe for you to be here. Why would you build your nest here of all places? Now, I know that my husband and I were really sleep deprived, and I know these, you know, this is an extraordinarily unusual and challenging time. Um, but in general, as a, as a rule of thumb, when you find yourself internally screaming at wildlife, <laughs> I think that it, it's it's a good idea to take just a wee little break and you know pause and 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 give yourself a chance to figure out what what maybe is going on. Here. Um, I know that, you know, in, in Catholic tradition, St. Francis of Assisi used to preach to the birds. Uh, but in my case, I felt like uh, this was more um, imbalanced, something imbalanced was going on. So I spent some time thinking about it. And um, what I came to with this was um, right now during this pandemic, we are not only uh, confronting the truth of our mortality but also the truth of our fragility. Now, I'll say that again. We're, we're not only confronting the truth of our mortality, but the truth of our fragility. And what do I mean by that? So what I mean is, even if we don't die from this terrible illness that, you know, is just sort of this pernicious and, and evil agent that we, we you know, we, this an enemy, we've never quite faced one like this enemy. Um, life as we know it has collapsed like a deck of cards, a house of cards, and we can't quite reconstruct it like we want to. We we don't go where we want to anymore. We don't um, do what we want to anymore. We can't just get what we want anymore. Um, there are a lot of questions about the future, our immediate, immediate future, our long-term future that we don't have answers for right now. And so... We know that God is supposed to bring good from even the worst of circumstances, but these particular circumstances are so um, long, um, long-lived and so relentless that we're left seriously doubting um, what God's going to do and how that's going to impact us. So I would say, you know, in some, uh, we see as never before that um, our sense of control over our lives is really an illusion and um, we don't know how reliably or how benevolently, benevolently God is going to wield his control when it comes to what we want or need. I mean, it just comes down to that. We have that, that conflict. Yeah, that's a great, and, great point, Rebecca. I might ask you to pause there if you don't mind. Sure. I was thinking uh, right before we go to break, uh, right after yelling at birds is yelling at inanimate objects. So when you're yelling at a chair, then you're really gone. (laughs) 
That's where I'm headed next. All right. <laughs> Dr. Rebecca Reed is my guest. RebeccaReed.net, R-E-B-E-C-C-A-R-H-E-E.net. We'll take a short break and be right back. You're listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Dr. Rebecca Ree as my guest. We are uh, talking about her latest blog. And if you've not subscribed to her blog, I recommend you do it. Go to RebeccaRee.net. We're talking about the nest. And uh, I love what we're going through, talking about fragility of life. Yep. So um, I'll be honest with you. Um, the way I struggle with the truth of my fragility um, is much the same way that I struggle with the with my son's insomnia, which is I uh, I treat it as something I desperately want to get rid of. I desperately want to rid myself of this thing in my life so that I can be okay. Now, what do I mean by okay? Everybody's got their own definition of being okay. And for me, I think actually for most human beings, being okay has um, more associations of being strong than being weak. So I'll, I'll give you a few small examples from my own life. Like, um, I don't like taking naps. I don't like um, allowing myself to take a nap, even no matter how legitimately tired I may be. I just feel like for myself, that's weakness. That's an indulgence. Um, I often set, tend to set goals that are too high. And then when I don't reach them, I give myself very little grace about it. Um, I'm very hard on myself when I make a parenting mistake or um, I find that I'm more and more uncomfortable with the changes that my body is going through as I get older. I'm, I'm almost 50 now, but I kind of expect myself to, to act the same ways when I was in my 20s. Um, and then I'm also impatient with myself over my sensory uh, sensitivities. And by that, by that, I mean how I react to light, how I react to sound. And during these times, especially when I'm sleep deprived, I often feel like, you know, everything's too loud, everything's too bright. And I'm kind of impatient and um, exasperated with myself about that. So um, I feel like, and again, I've said this before, I'm often comparing myself to others and feeling like I come up short. I'm so fragile and pathetic compared to other people. And, you know, I'm, I, I'm guessing that many of the listeners out there can relate to what I'm saying, that, you know, there may be aspects of your own fragility, be they emotional or physical or spiritual, that you struggle with too. Like you really have an internal conflict over these things and it plays out in all kinds of ways in your daily life and steals your peace. So here's the problem. So I went to the Bible and here's where the biblical truth comes in that hopefully will give us some strength and perspective, which is when I went to the scriptures, I could not find any support for rejecting or despising our fragility. Mm. I really, I couldn't find it. And in fact, what I found was quite the opposite. Um, so I'll give you some examples. When Jesus taught the multitudes, he put fragile things in a positive light. So in the Sermon on the Mount, um, that's probably one of the most famous, um, birds and flowers appear as objects of God's tender care. You know, not a sparrow falls. Or, you know, Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as fine as one of these flowers, Right. Um, and it's the meek and not the strong that are blessed as inheritors of the earth. And on multiple occasions, Jesus um, likens his beloved followers to sheep. And sheep are fragile animals. They're vulnerable. They're especially in need of safekeeping. 
And if you go a little further into the New Testament, for his part, the Apostle Paul goes so far as to boast about his fragility. He calls it weakness. He boasts in his fragility because it serves as a conduit for God's power. And then most dramatically, um, after Paul, is that when Jesus was speaking to his disciples about the death by which he would save humankind— he described that death as a demonstration of fragility, not a manifestation of might. Let me say that again. He described his redemptive death as a de- demonstration of fragility, not a manifestation of might. He said, this is my, parentheses, fragile body broken for you. Wow. One might even argue that the whole narrative of the incarnation from Jesus' birth to Jesus' death, plays out in Scripture as an exploration of God's handling of human fragility, how God uses these fragile earthen vessels to pour out heavenly blessing, the most awesome blessing being his very presence amongst us. So again, what I found in Scripture was like the polar opposite of the contempt in which I've been holding my myself, you know, my own fragility, the contempt that I've been feeling. So um, if I might, if I may, next time we are tempted to deal with ourselves, deal harshly with ourselves for being fragile, um, maybe we can try a few small things, because I, I always encourage people on my, on my blog to, to do things in small steps. So um, if I may, I think um, I'll offer you a, a few practical things. And um, the first is to remember that God appears to have built fragility into the very fabric of creation, that there seems to be a high and holy purpose that fragility accomplishes, even if we cannot always discern that purpose in the moment. And um, my guess is that some of our best contributions to the world come through fragile and sensitive parts of ourselves. So like an example might be maybe you're really sensitive to sound, but that makes you a great musician Or maybe you have a really fragile heart, but that gives you great compassion for others. Or um, maybe, you know, in terms of your own personal benefit, having a fragile self may make you more sensitive to the movement of God's Holy Spirit. So, um, again, let us um, just sort of acknowledge that God wove fragility into the fabric of creation, and we need to start viewing it from his point of view. Um, And then the second thing that we can do is submit our fragility to God rather than despising ourselves for it and working hard to eradicate it. Um, I was having, I was struggling over something a a years back that had to do with my own fragility. And a friend said to me, why do you despise your fragility? She said, some of the world's most beautiful and valuable things are fragile. She said, think of a Stradivarius violin. She said, think of a rose. Um, you know, she said, don't despise your fragility. Um, things, you know, it, 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 it speaks of value. It speaks of beauty. Um, so, you know, in practical terms, let's take a nap if we need to. Let's attempt baby steps rather than giant leaps. Let's cut ourselves some slack because no one in your life is better positioned to show yourself kindness, um, than you are. And, that kindness and that respect for your fragility 
um, is going to prove more fruitful in the end than any slave driving approach that you may try. Um, and then a third thing we can do is to accept this divine invitation, which seems to be aimed at those who feel their fragility most keenly. And it, 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 um, it goes like this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Beautiful, beautiful invitation if we're feeling fragile. And if I can sneak in a fourth one. Please. (laughs) um, I would say stay on the lookout for some signs like that bird's nest. That, you know, that with God there's always hope in desolate places. You know, there we were on a desolate campus. And then before we, we left, God made sure we saw a sign of hope in that little bird's nest. And like that mother bird, we have to build our nest um, and place our fragile selves in an infinite hands where they belong. Um, So just to look out for those signs and maybe even be willing to be a sign to others that God works through us in our fragility. And um, as we depend on him, something magnificent and very powerful messages that we need to hear of love and hope in a very dark time can shine through us. Uh, It's just wonderful, Rebecca. When I think of the Matthew 11 verse, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When you read that for yourself, what does rest feel like to you? Because it seems like you're always on the edge of another uh, task that needs to be done and Mm -hmm. um, another something that has to be executed. Right. And I, mean, I think most chore. of us feel yeah, most of us feel like we're on that hamster wheel and we never yeah, get off. Right. Um, I would say I think the, the deep and dark and dirty secret of modern life is that most of us, most of us are at war with ourselves within ourselves. We are really battling ourselves for one reason or another. And many of us, if we don't actually outright hate ourselves, often have contempt, have impatience have little compassion, and we treat ourselves harshly in in ways that we would never dream of treating other people. We have this different standard for ourselves. And so I think when Jesus can get us to stop, step outside ourselves and look um, at ourselves the way that he does, and we can have a moment of peace when we think, I don't need to hate myself there. I don't need to be so harsh there. I should actually, I, in fact, I want to extend myself some kindness there because Jesus wants to extend that kindness to me. He wants me to take this rest right now because um, he loves me, and, and that's what his will is for me. When we can have just those little oases of not fighting with ourselves so fiercely, I think that's what rest is. Mm, <laughs> At least that's how I experience it. Yeah, I absolutely love what you've said because— Oftentimes in Christian language, we use the opposite. We're, we're prayer warriors, and there's nothing fragile about that. I mean, there's, there's sometimes the expressions we use that we don't associate with fragility or, or letting God take care of us. Exactly, and I think the real test is, sure, we are called to be those warriors. We are called to stand up and be strong and have a strong voice against injustice and have a strong voice against evil and anything 
that God um, stands against, but at the same time, our hearts must always remain soft towards him exactly. and soft, soft towards the people he puts in our lives. And that's where the, the God-ordained fragility comes in. Yeah. So it's okay just to say God loves you in all your fragility. Yes. In fact, it's part of his divine image in you. Yeah, that's a wonderful perspective, and I just uh, have loved this time. Together, Rebecca, thank you once again. Dr. Rebecca Ree has been my guest. Her blog is RebeccaRee.net. You can head over there and sign up. It's for free. You just say, I want to get these blogs regularly, and you'll get them, and you'll love them. Rebecca, thank you so much for doing the show again. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yep. We'll take a short break. We'll be right back with more. <laughs> 